Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Cameron. I'm Jack Llewellyn. I am recording on the morning of Labor Day. So I hope everyone has had a great long weekend. I hope you get to enjoy today. I won't. I'll explain why at the end. But uh, Labor Day, the unofficial end of summer, which when I was growing up meant you went to school shortly after Labor Day. Almost always for me, the Tuesday after Labor Day or tomorrow. But I know nowadays, uh, my daughter's been in school for at least three weeks now, and I know lots of others have. Nevertheless, a good time to close the chapter on summer, look forward to the rest of the year. I, for one, am ready for summer to be over. I also am not a big fan of winter, so I'm hoping for a very long and mild and pleasant fall. Lots of good things coming up in the next few months. So I'm definitely looking forward to what is in front of us. All right, today we are going to do something that may strike some of you as unusual. Or at least different than what we normally do. We are going to continue our efforts to look at the trial transcripts to talk about the Camarena case. And today in particular... We are going to look at the trial testimony of former DEA agent Hector Breas. But, and this is what's different, today is not the day we are going to directly at least comment on, criticize, critique Agent Breas. Instead, we're going to use his trial testimony to highlight some issues, and to continue to question the land investigation, particularly after Agent Boreas is in charge of Leanda, and then the prosecutions that flowed from Operation Leanda and the investigations conducted by or led by Agent Boreas. And remember, as we're talking about these trial transcripts, and we have over the last couple of weeks, we got a couple of weeks more of them. There were three objectives in mind, right? Highlight the false narratives or dispel the false narratives. Question the government's efforts, which includes both the investigation and the prosecution surrounding the Camarena case. And three, try to answer or at least shed some light on some of the unanswered questions surrounding the tragic kidnapping, interrogation, torture, and murder of Agent Camarena. That's what we're trying to do here. So today, we are going to look exclusively at trial testimony from the 1990 criminal trial. Zuno 1. And I want to set the stage for you a little bit because it's important. Remember in 1990, the 1990 trial, there were four defendants. You had Juan Ramon Mataballesteros, you had Ruben Zuno Arce, and again, in the interest of full disclosure, if anybody's not aware, I was officially and unofficially part of the defense team for Ruben Zuno Arce 
in Zuno 1, Zuno 2, and then subsequent appeals. Defendant number three is Juan Jose Bernabe Ramirez. Defendant four, Javier Vasquez Velasco. Four defendants, four sets of defense counsel. And remember also that there are two crimes really involved here at this trial. You have the murders of Messrs. Walker and Radelat at the La Langosa restaurant, and you have conspiracy murder charges relating to Agent Camarena and his murder. You put these two different issues. You put four defendants, four defense counsel, and there are a number of issues. Lots of motions, lots of pleadings, lots of arguments, lots of times when testimony is interrupted for hearings or discussions of one sort or another. There are Simmons hearings. There are Castigar hearings. There are Jenks issues. In a lot of respects, or, or especially when you're trying to read it, and it, sometimes it actually gets pretty darn confusing as to who's pushing what agenda or what issue. I will say, um, all of the defense counsel were really, really good. And uh, that becomes very apparent as you're reading through things. Remember last week, I, I said, okay, let's pull back the veil a little bit on how trials work and how boring they can be. The other thing that you learn real quickly when you're reading through these transcripts is it's really hard to understand exactly what's being argued and what's being presented sometimes just by reading the transcripts. And it really made me think, just as a quick aside, that in any trial you have where you think there's any real possibility of there being an appeal or another reason for the record to be used after the fact it's so important to get the record clear and get the um, and make sure that your issues and concerns are really represented in the record. And sometimes I don't think defense counsel was able to do that very effectively in this particular trial. But again, a lot of that, that's not a criticism on the counsel, all of whom were very good. It's just the nature of things. And one of the things that happened is there was an effort to kind of divide up how, so the prosecution would put on stuff about one of the defendants and there'd be cross-examinations and then there would be um, the next witness and there'd be cross-examinations and then later on, there some of the witnesses would be recalled because they'd be talking about more than one defendant and then there would be issues of, okay, have we now gone beyond the scope? Was it talked about before? Was it already asked and answered? As I say, it can get pretty confusing both in person and at the trial. We are going to read from, or I am going to read from the transcripts again. I'll summarize in some places, but sometimes because of all these factors, the summary doesn't do it justice. You just have to hear the question and answer. So we'll do that. As I said, lots of issues, lots of pleadings. 
I looked at the docket last night. So the docket, for those of you who don't know, is just a listing of every pleading, every document filed with respect to the case. And the first entry in this docket, which is um, basically the, the establishment of the case, was on May 2nd, 1987. The first real substantive issues were reflected in a series of entries on January 11, 1988. By the end of 1990, the docket is 33 pages long, and you can get 20 or 30 entries on every page. The last entry in the case, which deals with appeals and various issues, um, was entered on August 18, 2020. The docket as it stands today is 61 pages long. So again, you've got a, a lot, a lot of, of testimony, a lot of issues, lots of pleadings. Um, the transcript itself is 31 volumes in length. Okay. So lots of information. Agent Bereas himself testifies many times, testifies at some of the hearings we've talked about, testifies um, with respect to more than one defendant. What I've tried to do is to narrow it down to three days of testimony and try to focus on the issues that are most relevant or the testimony that's most relevant to the three goals we just talked about, the three objectives, the false narratives, the government's efforts, and the unanswered questions. Okay. <clears throat> so the first testimony we're going to talk about is actually volume 18 of the transcript. It's on June 21st, 1990, and it concerns the defendant Juan Jose Bernabe Ramirez. Now, Remember that primarily um, Bernabe Ramirez is a La Langosta defendant, but he's got some things, some testimony here that's that's very interesting. Um, it's not extensive for our purposes, but it's interesting. Now, Agent Perez in about 1989 says that he's working on an undercover investigation. And he takes the identity of a trafficker by the name of Manuel Lizarraga. And this trafficker is supposed to be friends with Rafael Caracantero. Goes undercover and he meets with Bernabe Ramirez. And Bernabe Ramirez um, starts talking, you know. The the testimony from Agent Boreas is basically, you know, one trafficker starts talking to the other, and there's a little bit of um, bragging going on. And Bernabe Ramirez basically tells an awful lot about what he did in Mexico, who he associated with, and those sorts of things. Remember when we're reading this, and I'll remind you a couple of different times, but... This is Agent Boreas saying what 
Bernabe Ramirez said to him. Okay. So in one place, um, I, it's interesting. Bernabe Ramirez says, yeah, I was with Fonseca in Puerto Varta when Fonseca was arrested. All the other people were arrested with him. I was detained, but I got away because I was able to tell the arresting officers, the arresting Mexican officials, hey, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just a servant. And apparently he says he was was released at that point. Some interesting discussions about Lope de Vega and Agent Camarena that I want um, to go over real quick. So Agent Breyes is asked, did Bernabe Ramirez ever talk about 881 Lope de Vega? The answer from Agent Breyes is Yes, on that occasion, he told me that he had gone to 881 Lope de Vega with Fonseca and three other men in a pickup truck. Later on, he says, he told me that he had gone to that location, as I stated before, with three other men and Fonseca, and that he stayed outside and that he was aware that somebody was being held there. And later he found out it was Cameron who was being held there. He goes on to say, he stated that shortly after Fonseca had entered the 881 Lope de Vega residence, that shortly thereafter Fonseca had exited the house, followed by Rafael Caracantero, and that in his presence there had been an argument. He, again, Bernabe Ramirez, stated that Fonseca had expressed being upset that the person was beat up so bad and he told Carl Quintero that he had to be bumped off now. So this is consistent with some other statements and and stories, right? That Fonseca was mad at Carl because Camarena had been so badly tortured during his interrogation. There's stories of, of him actually slapping Carl, saying something like, you know, you made the baby, you got to deal with it, those sorts of things. And I find it interesting, again, going back to our three objectives, you know, does this shed a little bit of light on some of the motivations or who was responsible? And what this clearly says, if you say that it's, if not corroborated, at least consistent with other stories, that Fonseca did not want Agent Cameron to be killed. And from that, can you extrapolate that the plan never was to have him killed? He was going to be interrogated, get what you need, and then somehow released. Excuse me. Something else that I want to mention in that regard is the the idea that Agent Camarena was blindfolded. And I've seen in a couple of places the argument that, hey, if they were going to kill him, why would they blindfold him? Right? Doesn't matter who he sees if um, if he's going to be killed anyways. I wonder if that's true if you think about the interrogation tapes. Would it be... Could a counter argument to that be that 
there would be reasons why the traffickers, the kidnappers, the interrogators would not want their identities disclosed on the interrogation tapes if Ancient Camarena knew who some or all of them were, including but not limited to Tarotintero himself. But back to our point. Bernabe Ramirez says, yep, I was there. I saw Fonseca mad. I saw him get upset with Carl Quintero. And I saw him say, you know, Cameron is going to have to be killed now because he's in such bad shape. Okay. There's also a little bit of questioning about Dr. Machine. Remember, Dr. Umberto Alvarez Machine is a co-defendant in the 1992 Zuno 2 trial. But there is a little bit of discussion here. So the re- here's the question to Agent Breas. During the course of your investigation, a fact that you believe to be true is that a doctor at some point attended to Agent Camarena during the interrogation. Is that correct? I should note, this is on cross-examination. Mary Kelly, the attorney for Bernabe Ramirez, is questioning Breas. Is it true that you believe that a doctor at some point attended to Camarena during the interrogation? Is that correct? Boreas, yes, we had some information that a doctor had been present at the time. Question, and is this a fact that you attempted to corroborate through my client? Yes, I did. Question, and my client told you that he didn't know anything about that. Answer, yes. He said that he did not know anything about that. So I find that just a little bit interesting in that, you know, this is a witness that, uh, you know, know, knows the traffickers, involved with the traffickers, had been with Fonseca, and yet he knows nothing about the doctor or a doctor Nevertheless, subsequent years, what happens? Dr. Machine gets kidnapped from Guadalajara, taken to the United States, and is put on trial. All right. That's kind of the Bernabe Ramirez portion of the testimony. Now I want to move to Friday, June 29th. This is volume 23 of the interrogation tapes. And... Here's where we get to talk a lot about Hector Cervantes Santos and Antonio Garate Bustamante. And I I want to take half a step back for one second and remember the central role that we've seen Garate Bustamante play. Right? Cervantes Placencia worked for Garate. All all the things we've talked about the last couple weeks and how much of it starts with Garate. Now listen to some of this when we're thinking about that. So what I want you to think about, the role of Garate, the amount of of reliance on and maybe abdication of 
responsibility to Garate and then the credibility of Cervantes. So this is now on cross-examination by Ed Medvin, counsel for Ruben Zunoarce, cross-examining Hector Boreas. Question, is it correct, sir, that you started working with Garate Bustamante trying to obtain witnesses in connection with Enrique Camarena's kidnapping sometime in 1987? Yes, sir. 1987. Then he says, between sometime early in 1987 and October of 1987, uh, and this is when... Boreas had been stationed in Mexico during part of that time. So that's part of the reason for the time frame. But he said, during this time period, between early 1987 and October of 1987, you had occasions to speak numerous times to Garate Bustamante. Is that correct? Yes, sir. We worked on numerous undercover investigations together. Okay. So then he says, he being Brea's in response to one question says, um, hey, in 1987, during part of this time, I was not yet assigned to Landa. I wasn't on the investigation of the case uh, relating to Camarena. But he says, quote, I was asked by agents of Operation Landa to assist them in asking Mr. Garate to do this. And if I testified that I asked them to for witness." to get witnesses for me, I actually meant indirectly. It was for the Landa team of which I was not a member back then. Okay. Then he says, um, okay, so he, he had gone to Mexico on assignment. Then he comes back to Los Angeles and question. Now, when you returned to Los Angeles in 1989, from that time on through the end of the year, you resumed your relationship with Mr. Bustamante as a contact for witnesses he might find. Is that correct? That's correct, sir. Question. Is it also correct that shortly before Thanksgiving of 1989, a day or so before Thanksgiving, you were told by Garate Bustamante, that someone named Cervantes Santos was in a hotel in Los Angeles? Answer, I don't recall if he told me where he was, sir. Question, did you, after your call, your telephone call with Mr. Bustamante, did you go to a hotel in Los Angeles along with Agent Salazar to see Mr. Santos, or sorry, Mr. Cervantes? Answer, I went there, I believe, with Agent Morales on that date. So he goes to see Cervantes. How does he get Cervantes? Or how does he know about Cervantes? Garate Garate Bustamante told him about it. And that's consistent with what we've talked about before, right? When we looked at the testimony of Cervantes. Okay. I'm going to go through some, some stuff that I think is really, really important. And I want to make sure... That we're very clear. Remember, at 
trial, Cervantes testified to at least five what are referred to as conspiracy or planning meetings, right? He's the first one to really identify these alleged conspiracy meetings. And moreover, he's the first one to place a few people in connection with the case at all. Some government officials and, for our purposes here, Ruben Zuno Arce. Remember, not directly connected to the case at all in a material way prior to Cervantes. So now we have question. Is it correct that you and Mr. Salazar in your meetings with Mr. Cervantes on November 30 asked him to tell you whatever he knew about Mr. Zuno and that in any way had to do with the involvement of Mr. Zuno in the Enrique Camarena kidnapping? Yes, sir. Now on this date, November 30, there came a time during the day when you brought Mr. Cervantes to the United States Attorney's Office for a meeting with the assistant U.S. attorneys that were working on the matter. Yes, sir. And is it true during that meeting, the assistant U.S. attorneys working on this matter said to Cervantes Santos in substance, tell me everything you remember about Mr. Zuno's involvement in the Camarena kidnapping. Is this set, is that the substance of what was said to him at that time? Yes, sir. In short, during that day, Mr. Cervantes was encouraged to tell you all that he knew about Mr. Zuno's involvement in the Camarena case. Is that correct? Yes. So, again, you've got Boreas and another agent had met with Cervantes Santos, had talked to him later, a couple of days later, because remember, it's before Thanksgiving, then it's after Thanksgiving. They go, they meet with him again, then they take him, Cervantes Santos, to meet with the assistant U.S. attorneys, including Manny Medrano. And everybody says, everybody says, tell us what you know about the Camarena case and about Zuno's involvement. And it's really important to note that in the grand jury testimony, in the grand jury testimony by Agent Boreas, he says that the first time that there was any evidence that Ruben Zuno Arce was purportedly a member of a conspiracy that planned and put into operation the kidnapping, interrogation, and torture of DEA agent Camarena was on November 30, 1989. So, what do we know? We know that prior to, to the meeting with the U.S. attorneys, or the assistant U.S. attorneys, on the case... There was no evidence of Ruben Zuno Arce being involved at all. And we know from the direct testimony of Agent Boreas, we know that everybody had said to Cervantes Santos, tell us everything you know. Okay. Now, remember those five conspiracy meetings. This is really important. Okay. Question from Mr. Medvin, Zuno's counsel. 
on cross-examination. When you and Agent Salazar met with Mr. Cervantes on November 30th, did he claim at that time that Mr. Zuno attended any meeting where the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena was discussed in September of 1984, did he? No, not on that occasion, sir. He did not state on that occasion or claim that Mr. Zuno attended any meeting where a baptism was discussed. On a later, later date, he did, but not on that occasion. And then the question is, look, I'm asking you precisely. My question to you, sir, is on November 30, Mr. Cervante was asked, as he told us, tell us all you knew, and he made no claim that Mr. Zuno attended any meeting where the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena was discussed at a baptism. Is that correct? That's correct. Not on that occasion, sir. Question. He made no claim at that time. After you told him you wanted to know everything, that Mr. Zuno attended any meeting where Enrique Camarena's kidnapping was discussed at or around Javier Barbara Hernandez's wedding in October of 1984. Did he, sir? Not on that occasion. So that's two of the conspiracy meetings. Doesn't mention in, on that occasion. When you spoke to him on November 30. You and Agent Salazar, you did not claim that Ruben Zuno attended any meeting where the kidnapping was discussed at or around October at anyone's wedding. And I think that it was supposed to be he did not claim. Not on that occasion. He made no claim that Mr. Zuno attended any meeting where a kidnapping was discussed at any time in October, did he, sir? Not on that occasion, sir. He made no claim that Mr. Zuno attended any meeting where the kidnapping was discussed in January of 1985. Did he? Not on that occasion. Going down a little bit. And is it true that after Mr. Medrano and Mr. Carlton, as you've told us, asked him to tell us everything you know about Mr. Zuno's involvement or alleged involvement, Mr. Cervantes did not claim to them that Mr. Azuno attended any meeting where the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena was discussed in September of 1984. Is that correct? Not on the, that occasion, sir. That's correct. Is it correct that he did not tell Mr. Medrano or Mr. Carlton at that time or make any claim that... Mr. Zuno purportedly attended any meeting where a kidnapping was discussed at any baptism in September or any other month. Yes, sir. Is that true? My statements are true. Yes, sir. Is it also true, sir, that he did not tell Mr. Medrano or Mr. Carlton or make any claim that Mr. Zuno attended any meeting where the kidnapping was discussed at any time in October of 1984 in anyone's wedding or not? Not on the, that date. That's true, sir. Is it true, sir, that at the time with Mr. Medrano and Mr. Carlton, he made no claim that Mr. Zuno was at any meeting where the kidnapping was discussed in January of 1985? 
Then there's also a report where he talks to um, about Berea's talking to um, to Cervantes. I'm sorry, where Berea's is talking to Cervantes, and there becomes a question. I'm trying to summarize. There becomes a question of whether or not the town of Mascota was mentioned. Mascota is a small town outside of Guadalajara, which is where Ruben Zunoarce lived, at least in part. He had a house. He had a, a farm or a ranch out there. And he says, uh, sorry, Cervantes had also testified, if you remember, a, about Zuno having a, a house in Mascota and et cetera. So the town of Mascota becomes important only because that's where Zuno lived or had lived. So he says, or he's asked from Mr. Medvin, you'll agree with me, will you not? From looking at the report at least, your best recollection is there was no reference to Muscota in the report. That's true, sir. Now, after the November 30 meeting, or meetings you and Agent Salazar had, the several meetings, and the meetings with you and Mr. Carlton and Mr. Cervantes, or Mr. Carlton, Mr. Medrano, did Mr. Cervantes return to Mexico? Yes, sir, he did. And did there come a time when he returned from Mexico? Yes, sir, he returned. So let's recap that. Mr. Medvin goes through some of the discussions that Cervantes had with Agent Boreas, with AUSA Carlton and AUSA Medrano, asked to say everything that he knows, everything he knows about Zuno, Mr. Zuno being in any way purportedly involved in the kidnapping, interrogation, the planning, anything relating to the Zuno case or to the Camarena case, sorry. And he doesn't mention the baptism. He doesn't mention the January meeting. He doesn't mention the wedding. He mentions a meeting in February. That's it. And then he goes back to Mexico. And then he comes back in December. And shortly thereafter, he starts remembering things, right? And that's the stuff that he ends up testifying to. So I want to to go back through. There's a little bit of a recap here that I think is, is again, important. Did he say at the first meeting that he claimed occurred in early October 1984, where he claimed he heard anything about the kidnapping, that he did not recall specific statements made by any individuals in attendance at this meeting? He said that, and I remember the date, sir. Yes, he did. So again, just to recap, he goes to, or he talks to Agent Perez. He talks to AUSA Carlton. He talks to AUSA Medrano. 
doesn't talk about October, doesn't talk about a baptism, doesn't talk about a wedding, goes to Mexico, comes back, and all of a sudden he remembers a meeting in October of 1984, but at that time he says, hey, I don't remember any specific statements, though. Additional question. He did tell you that the first meeting was not at any baptism in September, but he specifically told you the first meeting where he allegedly was present, where he heard anything about the kidnapping, was in early October of 1984. Is that correct? That's correct, sir. Okay. So again, story changes over time, but it doesn't decrease, right? All of a sudden, we're getting meetings that were never talked about. First meeting isn't the first meeting now, it's the second meeting. Question, is it correct that Cervantes Santos said that he did not overhear specifics about the kidnapping because he was not present throughout the entire meeting as he was never in one place for an extended period of time during the gatherings? Is that correct? Yes, sir, that's correct. But remember the testimony of Cervantes. Remember, too, there's discussions about Primavera Park and that there was a concern that you can't take the body to Primavera Park because that might implicate Mr. Zuno. And that's actually what ended up causing the issue that resulted in the new trial. On that point, question from Mr. Medvin. In your January 3rd report on your conversation with Cervantes Santos, there is no mention of Primavera Park. That's correct, is it not, sir? The report is not mentioned, or I think it is not mentioned in the report. Question, did Cervantes on January 11th describing the October, the alleged October wedding meeting you told us about, before that he allegedly occurred during the wedding, tell you that the agent being discussed at that time in the main topic of conversation was Special Agent Camarena. Yes or no, sir? Yes or no? I don't remember, sir, if you used the word just agent or if you used the word agent Enrique Camarena, but it was referring to the agent and the report reflects Enrique Camarena. Yes, It said Enrique Camarena, whether it said agent or special agent, he referred to the claim that the people referred to the specific name Enrique Camarena or Camarena. Is that correct, sir? And this gets objected to and sustained. But there becomes a question again. Remember, did they know who the agent was or not? We went way back and looked at all the alleged conspiracy meetings. And at one meeting, they're trying to figure out who he is. And in another meeting, according to either Godoy or Lopez or or Cervantes or Enrique Placencia Aguilar, you know, depending on who's telling the story, they either know who the agent is or they're trying to figure out who it is. And that's what this point related to. Okay. One more transcript, which is from Tuesday, July 3rd. 1990, 
And I'm going to summarize a little bit of this because there's a whole lot of objections and a lot of colloquy between uh, counsel. But here's a question for Mr. Medvin. Mr. Boreas, with your approval, did Garate Bustamante place an ad or first furnish information to a paper in Guadalajara as late as March 1990, stating in part that this trial was coming up and requesting the potential witnesses to come forward. Now, that gets objected to on the grounds of relevance. Mr. Medvin tries to show a, a copy of the, of the, the request. Um, you know, and it, it gets overruled or it gets um, denied. So he doesn't get that showing. But I can tell you having been there and just as a matter of, of legal ethics, if Mr. Menvin didn't have such a thing, it would be highly unethical, highly improper. And Ed Menvin was the most ethical lawyer I've ever met to ask him about this. So what do we know? Garate Bustamante, as late as more excuse me, as late as March of 1990. 1990, March 1990. He's putting an ad in the paper saying, hey, there's a trial going on. Come to America, testify. And I'm sure whether directly said or implied, go to America, testify, and you'll get to stay in America and you'll get paid. All right. Couple of other people end up um, asking, or a couple of defense counsel, sorry, end up asking Hector a couple of questions. Mata Ballesteros counsel, Martin Stolar, says, and I think you'll find this interesting Have any promises been made to Mr. Garate that he will not be charged in connection with the kidnapping and murder of Agent Camarena? No, sir. He didn't kill Agent Camarena, sir. Question. Well, you had information that he was present and participated in a meeting where plans, initial plans, were made to murder Agent Camarena. But not where he was asked to kill Agent Camarena. But he participated in the meeting, didn't he? Objection to the argument. The objection is sustained. And then it goes on and on, and there's objections and things. But again, think about this. Garate isn't being charged, even though he was at meetings, because he didn't actually kill Camarena. But who's on trial relating to the Camarena case here? Juan Ramon Matabiasteros, did in any allegation that he actually killed Camarena? No. Ruben Zunarse, any Allegation that he actually killed Agent Camarena. No. So I just find that a, a little bit um, interesting and curious. One other thing. Um, actually, two things. Sorry. So there's a question um, put to Agent Breas about... Um, talking about, you know, figuring out what the government or what Camarena knew about government officials. 
And so the question is, at the November 30 interview, did Mr. Cervantes Santos say to you in substance that one of these meetings or at the meeting described that Barbara Hernandez said it would be helpful to find out what the DEA person knew about high-level Mexican politicians? Answer, again, I don't recall if those were Mr. Cervantes' words, but I do recall that he, that the conversation he described alluded to that the agent should be asked about what he knew about high-ranking government officials working in collusion and in protection of the major drug lords in Mexico. And that Barbara Hernandez is the person who's supposed to have said that. I believe that's who said it. Yes, sir. So again, that's kind of interesting. If we go back to our discussions about Barbara Hernandez, his role in connection to the other traffickers and his role in the kidnapping, um, or, or at least the planning of Agent Camarena's kidnapping. There also is a great deal of discussion during Agent Perez's testimony regarding photographic evidence and photographic lineups presented to Cervantes by Agent Perez and perhaps Agent Salazar, where a number of defendants, including Bernabe Ramirez, Mata Ballesteros, and others are identified. And the sum and substance of that is that there were not DEA 6s written concurrently with that photo lineup being shown to Cervantes. It was in a book, and they called it the Red Book. It was in a binder of, of photographs. And a great deal of questioning about the propriety of not having DEA 6s made in order to document exactly the procedure in which those photos were shown to Cervantes and which ones he identified and how that process worked. Number of questions come up. Um, you know, you can, you can extrapolate from there. Ultimately, the, the questions are for not uh, because the testimony comes in uh, the the photo ID testimony comes in, but that's that's an issue. I do want to state one other thing with respect to Cervantes's remembering things. If we go back, November thirty, he's talked to Boreas before. He talks to Madrano. He talks to Carlton. Doesn't mention a whole bunch of things. Goes back to Mexico. Comes back about two weeks. Two, three weeks later, all of a sudden he's starting to remember things. May not remember them perfectly because he changes the story later, but he remembers things. And Hector at one point says, look, there's an easy explanation for that. He doesn't say it quite like this, but he says Cervantes was nervous. He was scared. And when you're nervous and you're scared and you've got family and you, you're worried about them and you're nervous for them, you don't say everything you know all at once. You say a little bit and you see if there's 
you know, some credibility being built up. You see if they're going to be honest and fair with you. And then later on, as you get more and more comfort, you start to say more. And Agent Breas says, I'm good at that process. I got him to a point where he trusted me. He trusted Madrano. He trusted Carlton. And that's why he started to tell more. On the other hand, you could also say he's scared. He wants to stay in the U.S. He wants to, you know, wants his family to be secure. Um, holding back information might not be the best way to achieve that goal. Nevertheless, that's what's said. So this is what we get from the 1990 trial testimony of Hector Boreas. Seems to me that we can talk or draw maybe a couple of conclusions. Number one, there really ought to be an audit of the land investigation, shouldn't there? Shouldn't there be someplace a record that becomes made public of the number of people brought to the United States through Garate Bustamante in particular and what they were paid and for how long? That's number one. Number two, based on everything we've talked about today, is it any wonder, is it any wonder at all that witnesses started to appear after Hector is in charge of of Operation Landa? Is it any wonder that after Cervantes testifies and then recants his testimony, then re-re-recants, and all the investigation into Cervantes proves that he wasn't credible. Is it any wonder that surprisingly, all of a sudden, the Doy and Lopez appear, and they remember things about Ruben Zuno Arce just in time for the 1992 trial? Of course, they have a connection. Garate Bustamante. I also want to make one thing clear. My point here is not to say, whether I believe it or not, that the convictions were wrong, that the jury shouldn't have convicted any of the defendants. Obviously, at the time in particular, I wish they hadn't convicted Ruben Zuno Arce, but that's not the point here. The point really is how did the investigation work and how did they get their witnesses and how did the witnesses start to remember things? And it's more a question of governmental integrity than it is convictions. Should somebody have been convicted or not? And I think there's a hell of a story there. And there's a lot of concern that becomes more and more and more apparent. You start putting things together. You know, Godoy and Lopez didn't don't talk about Ruben Zuno Arce at all to anyone until after a new trial is ordered. Cervantes Santos doesn't remember doesn't talk about all kinds of meetings, 
meetings that become very important in the trials. He doesn't talk about those at all until after he'd gone back to Mexico. It's going to make you ask questions, right? Okay. A couple of things I want to touch on. Next week, excuse me, we're going to do a couple more transcripts, a couple of miscellaneous ones that have some interesting facts and information. So um, join me next week, please. Uh, newsletters out. I, it gets bigger and bigger because there's more and more information all the time. Some really interesting stuff. Let me know if you want to subscribe to it. My book, Someone Had to Die, is now out on audiobook exclusively through uh, Apple Audiobooks. It's only $2.99, which means the author isn't getting anything for it. But if you want uh, you know, to listen to it, you can now do that. Someone Had to Die, Apple Audiobooks. Someone Had to Lie, my second book is almost finished, almost ready to go to the publisher. If anyone would like to read an advanced preview of some of the book, please let me know. I'd be happy to share. And last, big things, big, big things are coming up on YouTube very soon. Technical issues, summer vacation issues have delayed it a little bit, but you're going to like it. I promise. So that, my friends, is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for today. I'll talk to you next week. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Uh, and hope everybody had a good Labor Day weekend. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks again.